Here we go. Coming at you from New Jersey, the capital of all misery in the place where metal forgot to die. This is Here Lies Metal, the podcast that brings you the origins, history, and culture of everything metal. I am Maledictus, and I will be your overlord for today and all of eternity. Welcome. Now, this week, we're going to do some more concert reviews, as I've been going to a lot more concerts recently. So I went to two concerts this week to share with you. And that first concert was Doyle. I mean, you're probably familiar with Doyle. He was the guitarist for the Misfits, legendary New Jersey punk band, the Misfits, who are filling, who will be filling an entire arena for about $150 a ticket at Nosebleed. Um, if you can imagine that, if you ever, you are an old person and you'd seen the Misfits maybe back in the day, maybe in like 1982, you probably might have seen them in some VFW hall or some small club and they sounded terrible. And now they are filling the Prudential Center in Newark for, or at minimum, $150 a ticket. There's something just terribly, sadly ironic about that. And it's very, dis- <laughs> it's very uh, kind of disappointing, don't you think? However, Doyle, who was appearing and who is probably the most down-to-earth member of that band, I would imagine. His name isn't even on the bill. When you look at the Misfits bill, it's like Jerry Only of the Misfits and Glenn Danzig. And Doyle didn't even bother because he probably doesn't give a fuck. Um, he was playing a small bar in Clifton, New Jersey, place where Metal Forgot, the official place where Metal Forgot to die, that's Clifton, New Jersey, uh, with his own band, his solo act, which is get, uh, getting more and more successful and is really a band worth taking a look at as they're really upholding uh, both punk and metal at the same time. Uh, you could say someone like Doyle is one of the most underrated heavy guitar players in the scene right now. Uh, he has a very heavy sound, and it's like he doesn't even try. You know, he doesn't care. He just bangs on that guitar. He has these uh, custom-made guitars that he makes himself in a machine shop right here in New Jersey. And he, I believe he plays through bass amps. I've seen him in an interview about his gear. He plays on bass amps, how heavy he is. And it's not only about Doyle. I mean, he has a singer named Alex Story, who is an amazing frontman. I think this guy rather than uh, silly Glenn Danzig who could hardly carry a tune anymore. Not that the Misfits really require that, but Glenn Danzig is an old man. Uh, Alex is uh, a lot younger, probably uh, one such a little older than me. However, he really kicks ass as a front man uh, for Doyle's solo project. Uh, he's, he's a werewolf, as, as where Doyle is a Frankenstein monster, and he has his own band called Cantor Slug, which is also... Um, pretty good band. He, you know, he's a good lyricist. He's a pretty fucked up lyricist. If you want to listen to his words, uh, he writes some pretty fucked up poetry. Let's go over the concert reviews. So I saw two concerts this week. I'm ranting it. Two concerts. I also, the other night, I saw The Musical Box. Now, if you don't know what that is, this is not metal. This is a prog rock cover band. A cover band. Uh, it's one of those full-on cover bands. Not your local shitty Black Sabbath cover band that you find in New Jersey. This is... Uh, they go full on. They go in full on in costume and instruments, all the authentic equipment. I believe they're from Quebec, and they are called the Musical Box. And they cover fifty years. Well, I wouldn't say they cover fifty years of Genesis. They only sort of cover the first maybe five years of Genesis. However, they're working on it. So they basically cover the early part of Genesis uh, from Foxtrot 
to sell New England by the pound. So basically like three albums they really cover. However, they do it very uh, professionally. There is really no better band that covers Genesis than these. There might be the only band covering Genesis at that level. They have to do it because the real Genesis couldn't be bothered to um, be asked to show up. I mean, Phil, where's Phil Collins right now? I think uh, he's a recovering alcoholic, unfortunately. Never thought I'd see Phil the day where Phil Collins would be a substance abuser. He can't really play drums anymore, so it's a really sad story for Phil Collins. He kind of lives a sad life, it seems. Look up some videos about him on YouTube. I mean, you could just see him in some interviews where he's wasted. I mean, he's he's just shit-faced. It's really sad. And this is recent. This is within a few years. So old Phil Collins, you know, hopefully he's doing better now. But I don't have, there's not too much hope for him. He really can't play drums anymore. He has nerve damage. And a few other guys, uh, Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford, I don't really know what they're doing. They're probably just enjoying retirement, not giving a fuck. I mean, Genesis had gotten back together a few years ago um, as, as a reunited act, uh, maybe about 10 years ago. And that went okay, but, you know, Phil is Phil and doesn't, you know, he wants to do his own thing. And that was really it. So, and of course, Peter Gabriel is doing his weird orchestration stuff. And he has a really good show, but, you know, he's getting old too. So there's really no hope to see the original Genesis again. It's never going to happen again. It's like, you know, trying to see Kiss again or the Beatles or something like that. But let's get into the reviews. I just kind of just told you the reviews already, didn't I? But let's uh, let's start with <laughs> let's start with Doyle at uh, Dingbats in Clifton, and that was February twenty first at Dingbats in Clifton. Let me tell you what I saw. Now Doyle um, kicks ass and chooses bubblegum. He kicks ass and chews bubblegum like Roddy Piper. However, he um, he never runs out of bubblegum. Unlike Roddy Piper, he continues to kick ass and chew more bubblegum. That's what he does when he's up there. He's like, a, he's kind of like a kid. You know, he's always got his bubblegum, which is probably vegan bubblegum, I would imagine. But uh, when Doyle comes back to New Jersey, it's more than Doyle just going anywhere, just playing anywhere. When he comes back to especially Dingbats, he has an army of psychotic fans there. And it's really a great, it's a great atmosphere. And everyone's really cool. No one's a dick. They're so enthusiastic about Doyle and his band and the rest of his band. And... And I feel sorry for the other guys in the band. I would say uh, Brandon Strait and uh, Murph the drummer because they really are just in the background while Doyle and Alex Story just destroy the place. It's very difficult to compete with them, but they probably know what they signed up for. It's like, hey, you're just going to be in the back there. You're going to play the songs and Alex Story is going to destroy the stage, act like an animal, and Doyle is just going to stand up there and chew bubblegum and kick ass and be Doyle. There's really no... Uh, you're not... You're, you're in the background when you're... And you have two guys like that on stage. And I'd say it's amazing that Alex could really uh, keep up with Doyle. Just I mean, Because Doyle doesn't have to do anything, let's face it. He is this legend, and everyone kind of worships the guy. And, and I think he's a down-to-earth guy. He, he's probably like, wow, you know, I, I guess I'm a misfit. I guess I'm a legend. I don't know how. Because he, you know, he doesn't consider himself a great guitarist. I mean, very humble guy. It's funny because Doyle is playing in this small club like I said before, in a few months, next month, Doyle will be playing with his brother and Glenn Danzig and Dave Lombardo from Slayer and a number of good, pretty good opening acts like Suicide Tendencies, which Dave Lombardo is playing drums for. I imagine Dave Lombardo probably secured that. He's like, hey, if I play with you, my band gets to open for you. A number of opening acts. Murphy's Law is also opening. And Harley Flanagan with his version of... The Cro-Mags, which I guess is the only version of the Cro-Mags, or he'll beat you up. So either way, it, it's it's it'll be a good show. However, it's it's at least one hundred and fifty dollars a ticket. I was looking; they they are sold out, so it's all resale. And to get nosebleed 
and I'm telling you, they filled the whole arena. I was looking for tickets for Judas Priest, who will also be playing there next month, and they haven't even remotely sold out the place, which is sad. I mean, Judas Priest hasn't, but the Misfits have. I guess that's, it's New Jersey. We're in New Jersey. And the Misfits really are living gods here. There's no other way to look at it. This is their home. They don't live here anymore. So we have to give respect to the Misfits, even though they're kind of um, from another planet sometimes these days, besides Doyle. But uh, it's amazing how, uh, going back to the Doyle show, it's amazing how I got to see Doyle right in front of me, sweating on me. There he is. And in a month or two, he will be up there, distant, a distant little speck to many in the nosebleed sections of the rock. Uh, that, that's just a stark contrast. It, it, uh, an unbelievable irony that only Doyle could pull off. You know, Glenn Danzig obviously would never take the stage at Dingbats. So it, it's really, you got to give credit to Doyle for just working hard, being the hardest working guy in that band who doesn't care, who will continue to tour. And I'm sure after that Misfit show, he will continue to tour as Doyle because he really wants to push his own act. He wants to be successful as a solo artist. And he's really working harder than ever to do that. Alex is a good lyricist. He writes pretty fucked up subject matter. Same with his own band, Cancer Slug. He, you know, he's a guy who wants to shock you with his lyrics. And uh, I think he's a down-to-earth guy. Like I said, I think he should be. If the Misfits ever got back together without Glenn Danzig, I would, I would insist that Alex Story sings for them because he has an energy um, that Glenn Danzig has never had. Far better than your Michael Graves. I know there's some Michael Graves people out there, and I don't, I don't blame him. He, was a, he wasn't a bad singer for the Misfits. I mean, bands have to change. You can't have the original, you know, you can't be like, I'm not listening to this unless it's the original guy. I mean, that's what bands do. There's plenty of bands that change their members all the time. Some bands that wear costumes that you don't even know they've changed their members. So now let's continue here. Uh, we had a couple of uh, opening bands locally. I'm going to mention these guys. And one that really stuck out with me was a band called Deadly Night. I got to give them credit. They, they had an ex-mortis like, so I was amazed at their talent for a bunch of local kids. These guys really kicked the shit out of it with their, their playing, their, their musical ability. You would expect a bunch of sort of misfits worshiping bands that would open for Doyle, which usually happens, you know. It's a lot of bands in New Jersey that think they're the misfits, understandably. Like, where do these bands go? Where are they? Where are they? And where do they get drummers like that? I'm always looking for a drummer, people, and I can never find one. I can't even find a shitty drummer to play any project I'm starting. And meanwhile, these guys have these drumming virtuosos. So where do you people find these drummers? Write to me. Here lies metal at gmail.com. Where the fuck are these drummers? And if you're a good drummer out there that's local New Jersey, play with me, Melodictus. He's always trying to form something on his own. You know, I play with a band right now, but you know, it's not my band. It's not my drummer. So I'm looking for a kick-ass drummer that is available and that isn't an asshole. So, okay, I should, I should get back to the review. I'm always ranting here. I could just go on forever about things. But Doyle was really good. So he's continuing his As We Die tour, Abomination As We Die 2018, until, of course, he plays with the Misfits. I'm sure he'll start another tour again later this year. So you'll be able to see him. Yesterday, last night, that was the 23rd of February 2018 at the Wellmont Theater in Montclair, the Musical Box, this is a French-Canadian cover band of Genesis. They cover three albums of Genesis they cover. And uh, that is, uh, I'd say, from Nursery Crime through Foxtrot through, like, no, Foxtrot came first, right? Foxtrot, Nursery Crime, and Selling Union by the Pound, I would say. And they're starting to cover uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which is much more 
different, you know, concept album. You know, like I said, it's unfortunate that, you know, we can't ever see the real Genesis. So we have to settle. I'm not really for cover bands. I don't like reviewing cover bands. I think most cover bands are pretty damn pathetic, especially the ones around here, especially the ones that cover Black Sabbath around New Jersey. They're pretty awful. I'm shouting out to a certain person out there. Your fucking band is awful, okay? Your, your band is awful. You hear me? Your Black Sabbath cover band sucks. Stop doing it. It's insulting. And, but these guys obviously are like a real touring band. Musical box. They aren't fucking around. And, you know, the tickets are not that expensive either. So, um, I just have to say the crowd. You know, you would think, uh, you know, a metal crowd will be assholes. But, no, the pro the old loser nerd prog rock crowd are a bunch of assholes. We had a guy next to us who just had to get up every five minutes to do something. I don't know what he was doing, doing lines of coke. He had to piss. I don't know. But he kept getting up during the show. And he got up during the crescendo of the show when Peter Gabriel comes out during the end of Supper's Ready when he come, when the whole thing lights up, when he says, Jerusalem, and it lights up. He had to get up during that part. I was like, who the fuck would get up during that part? You, you are supposed to be at attention during that 22 minutes of Supper's Ready, and you're getting up like at least three different times during this song. What is wrong with you? Also, I've never seen so many people drink at a show. I've been to a lot of metal shows. I go to a lot of metal shows, and metalheads do not drink nearly as much as these miserable prog rock fucks. These guys are just a bunch of old, just sorry people. And I was like the youngest person there. You know, me and my girlfriend were there. We are like, we're looking, you know, and, I, and of course I love this kind of music, but the fans are just, uh, I can see why people make fun of them. They're just fucking pathetic people. And I, I like metal shows a lot better. The metal people are far better. You know, whether they're old or young, they're just far better people than prog rock assholes. I'm done with you prog rock people. You guys suck. You know, you guys just don't know how to behave yourselves during a show. So fuck you guys. Go back to your mom's basement, you fucks. Those are my concert reviews. So yeah, that's the that's the state of things in local music. I have a number of shows I'll be going to. I'll be seeing uh, in May Electric Wizard. First time I've ever seen Electric Wizard. They've been around since the early 90s. It's the first time I'm seeing them. So I hope to give you a nice review on that, I'm really looking forward to that. So that's one of the uh, more major shows I'm going to. I might see Exodus um, maybe later next month. So that'll be cool. Uh, hopefully I get uh, access to that show. I'm applying for press access for that show. So I would really like to give you a review on that. Hopefully I get that. But like I said, during metal shows, the fans aren't generally that shitty. Unless you're at a ghost show. The fans at a at ghost shows really suck. But they're not real fucking metal fans, though, are they? No, they're not bunch of like kids kind of people that like ghosts you know ghosts used to be good when they first came out it's like man they, they were good and they weren't popular but then they got popular and like they sucked you know it's like it's the hipster thing to say but it's just true they just they're just not that good anymore and their fans kind of suck been to a couple of ghost shows and i'm always like oh jesus the fucking ghost these fucking ghost kids but okay so those are my concert reviews what we have to do the news yes Decided to do the news this week. Once again, we'll always do the news. But these are a few stories that the metal media at large has been covering throughout the week. So if you haven't heard these stories already, get ready for the maledicted spin on these stories. Here we go. First story. Um, the possible Kiss Farewell Tour. I know you're all cheering. You're like, finally, those fuckers are going away. But, you know, Kiss has a good influence on metal. They're an important band. I mean, yeah, they're pretty silly. 
and pretty annoying, but they are um, a perfect example of a highly successful band of two guys that really uh, conquered the industry from nothing. So you have to give them credit for their uh, ambition. And I mean, yeah, sometimes they had to they had to hurt people along the way. And they had to, uh, you know, maybe piss off a lot of fans along the way. But they are what it takes to be successful in rock and roll. They're perfect examples. And it's not all pretty. You should really listen to the, uh, the story that Paul Stanley wrote. He just talks shit about everyone. And I guess that's what he has to do. I mean, he's worse than Gene Simmons in that aspect. He just shit talks everyone. At least Gene will you know, hang out with uh, Ace Freely sometimes. You know, I mean, it's for the money, obviously. But nevertheless, uh, Paul is a major shit talker. But, you know... We're all surprised that this hasn't happened years ago. I mean, Kiss was still around, like they're still around. But uh, the legendary hairy-chested 70s rock icons might be preparing to call it quits rather than create a new Kiss featuring younger replacements that carry on this uh, fading torch. Uh, there's been talk of that before, of Kiss actually just putting different people in their makeup. I mean, they're doing it right now with uh, the Tommy Thayer and... Uh, Eric Singer, they have them dressed up like Ace Freely, Peter Chris, and it doesn't, does it really matter? I mean, they probably should have done that years ago. They probably should have done that when they first started instead of just bitching and complaining about Ace and Peter uh, throughout, from the beginning. They should have just replaced them early on and no one would have noticed. But, you know, now everyone, you know, all the fanboys are angry. You know, all the basement dwellers, the kind of Kiss fans, the same kind of people that go to the prog rock shows. You know, they're all sore. They're like, oh, it's Ace, man. How can you do that to Ace? I don't know. Ace is a fucking crackhead sometimes. You know, he's difficult to deal with. He's better on his own anyway. Ace, uh, Ace's solo thing is pretty good. Uh, earlier in the century, Kiss had announced a farewell tour with uh, original crackheads Ace Freely and Peter Chris, but uh, followed up by simply uh, after they realized they could put Tommy and uh, Eric in their costumes, uh, they're like, well, we'll just... Uh, Let's just keep doing this. We could keep milking this. And, uh, of course, Ace claims that uh, his he licensed his trademark makeup scheme to uh, Kiss for a fee. So he's continues, he claims he continues to be making money off of it. I don't know. I think there's different things. I mean, I probably Paul Stanley was like, no, no, it's not. He's not. It's all, he sold it to us. But so that's what they all claim. They're always just conflicting each other. It's just a big fucking happy clusterfuck. But this, you know, this, of course, extends the life of, Kiss by putting younger guys, uh, less guys that do a lot less crack, um, in in their makeup, and it keeps most. You know, they still fill the arenas, I guess. But I think the fan base is dying off and dwindling, and people are just being like, "All right, enough already, enough with this Kiss." But this story came about that Kiss might actually retire this time. I mean, it seems more likely. Uh, evidence has uh, come up that Kiss has officially filed a request to patent the title End of the Road for use in entertainment services. So that's sort of like an indicator, a legal indicator, that uh, there might be some truth in Kiss actually calling it quits this time. I mean, hey, they're old. You know, they they did their thing. Like I said, all of our bands are going to die, and this time it's Kiss. Soon it's going to be Judas Priest. Soon it's going to, you know, it's going to be Slayer. It's, it, they're going to go. We need new bands. People, stop trying to to prop up these dead corpses we, we've got to find new music we've got to give support to our new bands there's a lot of new bands out there that have potential and i see a lot of them just disappearing because they're not making any money because no one cares about them which is really sad uh, we need to support music you know 
Stop downloading. Lars was right, people. Stop downloading the fucking music for free. He was right, right? A lot of people have admitted he saw something back then and you all laughed at him, but and then, yeah, he was a dick about it, but he was right, guys. You're, you're killing. Record labels do nothing but fuck bands, okay? And by you not buying the album, you're just fucking them more. So, like, they have to, you know what happens when they don't make it, but they have to go and get normal jobs like you, you fucking loser. So, and they have talent. They deserve more. They they took the risk. They were like, fuck this. We're not getting the job. We're going to rock out, all right? They decided to do that when they were 18 years old or younger. And you were just like, eh, I'm just going to go to school and just get a job. Well, they didn't do that. So how dare you fucking steal from them? What if what if you went to work one day and they were like, well, nobody bought our shit today, so you're not getting paid. What, yeah, what if somebody told you that? So give these bands credit, people, all right? Like, support them. If you want a future of music, if you want a future of metal, fucking start supporting these bands, all right? It doesn't cost much, you know? It really doesn't. Start supporting Maledictus here at Here Lies Metal, Patreon uh, slash Here Lies Metal. Start supporting me. Well, you know, I have, I have the job thing, but, you know, one day I will be the greatest metal scribe in all of the universe and I won't have to have a job, right? Because you will elevate me to that because you guys love metal. All right, let's get to the more news. Kiss, they might retire. Good, okay. The elusive Tool album that some of you care about. I, I have never been a fan of Tool, but this is important metal news, so I have to tell you about it. Uh, Maynard, Maynard, James Keenan, James Keenan Maynard, the guy that makes wine now, uh, is done with the words. He has written uh, a whole set of his funny words that he writes for songs that don't make any sense. And the music is recorded. Can this be possible? Everyone's been waiting for this album for a long time, I think. And for all those, like I said, for all those of you that still care about Tool, which appears to be a good number of people, uh, and you guys have been waiting for this Tool album for allegedly 12 years, according to my research, uh, the band formed in the early 90s and instantly became MTV video sweethearts with their uh, claymation video, uh, despite a lot of metaphorical, subversive, and pervasive titles in their lyrics. I mean, you know, but MTV, I guess, was trying to get edgy, so they were like, oh, we need something edgy. Or either that, I just didn't know. Um, they've been around for 20 years, and uh, Tool only has four studio albums. Imagine that. They've been around for 20 years. They, they're, they, that's why people are frustrated with them. They're like, oh, oh, wow, another album? About time, guys. I'm getting old. Tool actually featured, interesting fact about Tool, featured um, alternate album artwork featuring a, uh, a recently deceased Bill Hicks at the time in the 90s on their Anima record. Anima. and Anima. I guess, you know, they're like those kind of guys. They're just like living trolls. You know, people that uh, are fans of Bill Hicks. I don't know, he's one of those, like, conspiracy theory comedians. That's why people think Bill Hicks didn't actually die. He just turned into Alex Jones, which is entirely possible. Conspiracy theory. I think I'm actually Bill Hicks. Uh, I, I change it to Bill Hicks, and the frogs are gay. That's right. So, yeah. So, you know, if you're if you're those kind of guys, if, if Tool really leads to just Alex Jones kind of people, then I want fucking nothing to do with you guys. So, fuck you. I'm sure most Tool people. Uh, here's another story, another sad story. We always have sad stories, don't we? Uh, Gibson guitars. These are the guitars that many metal guitar players and bass players use. Um, the legendary guitar company founded over 100 years ago in Kalamazoo, Michigan, is allegedly in serious financial trouble. 
Gibson, currently located in Nashville, Tennessee, is said to owe more than $100 million in debt. Hundreds of famous metal icons are known for slinging a Gibson Les Paul or a SG or a Flying V or an Explorer or a Firebird. You know, Gibson is not doing well, so hopefully they get out of this. You know, it would be really sad to just have Gibsons disappear forever. I mean, I am an owner of a Gibson guitar. I'm a Firebird player myself. And uh, they're, you know, they're, <laughs> are they the best guitars? Not really, but they're, it's kind of an icon, I guess. That's how most guitar playing works. It's, it's not about how it's made. It's like, whoa, it's a Gibson. I guess that's how it works. You know, I, I knew Gibson was in trouble for a while. The, the software I use to record this podcast is called Cakewalk Sonar, and that was actually owned by Gibson, and recently it was discontinued. So this version I'm using here will never update again, and Gibson basically stopped um, supporting this. So that was one sign. Like, they basically could not afford to continue maintaining this software title. So that was an indication to me. I was like, oh, these guys are obviously in trouble. And, of course, recently it came about that Gibson can, is might have to declare bankruptcy. Another story. Uh-oh, we have Metallica news. Uh, why does Metallica make the news every week? They do. They just do something. They don't have to even try. But, obviously, every year Metallica has been re-releasing... Um, remastering uh, their classic albums from Kill 'Em All uh, onwards, um, basically at the 30-year mark of all these albums. So they're up to justice for all this year, which I think makes a lot of Metallica fans happy. However, they had announced that, like some of the albums before, they had done remixing as well as remastering. Uh, however, Justice for All will not be remixed. So I was hoping for a remixed version of Justice for All. I was like, I want to hear what Jason's bass sounded like. But no, they will not do that. Lars had explained... That there's too many tapes and reels and all this shit and this complicated shit and they can't do it. Like, it's not possible to do. We will not be remixing And Justice for All. We would just be remastering it and re-releasing all the bullshit that comes with it. All the records and outtakes and all the shit we've probably heard before. Yes, we will not hear Jason's bass. A lot of, even Jason has said, though, he's like, the original Justice for All is the album you loved. It, there, there is no bass in it, okay? That's it. You'll never hear it. The album we all grew to love, the album, the legendary album that was And Justice for All, Probably one of the first metal albums I ever heard. Uh, first, one of the first metal albums that ever scared the shit out of me. Um, will not. That's how it was intended to be, with no bass, with with a bass drum that sounded like a tin can. That is what it is supposed to be. It's funny how Metallica actually. I feel like they knew how to play back then. Right? I mean, obviously we can't hear Jason, but Lars's drums weren't terrible, and and Kirk's solos were actually pretty impressive back then. Because when you hear Kirk today, he just just you know. His feet have been, his shoes have been converted to wah-wah pedals, and he just go, he just makes wah-wah sounds without any technique. But back then, it was like, whoa, that's a really impressive solo. So I feel like his skills kind of atrophied, and so did Lars. I mean, James, is, I think James is still a great guitarist. You know, whether you like them or not, I was, that's, that's a very impressive album. Even though the recording quality is uh, questionable, or the recording method is not necessarily quality, but method is uh, really controversial. I remember liking Megadeth more at the time because I was like, wow, you can hear the bass in Megadeth. So that really meant a lot to me when I was like 12 years old. However, uh, so you will not hear Jason's bass in the new version, the 30th anniversary version of And Justice for All. Just so you know, because it's been making the news. And finally, in non-metal news, uh, preacher Billy Graham has died. And what does that have to do with metal? Zero. All I know is Billy Graham was mentioned in a Man of War song once song Fast Taker, where it goes, it goes, take it out Friday with the daddy goes to sleep, bring it back on Sunday when he's watching Billy Graham on TV. 
won't see me. That's 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 what you know. That's Billy Graham's involvement with metal, thanks to Manowar on the Fast Taker song. So that is the news for today. Billy Graham is dead. I heard he hated metal anyway, so fuck that guy. And we will now get on with the show. Wow, I'm really talking a lot. I think we're like almost a half hour in, and I just keep talking today. So it's obviously going to be a long episode because I can't shut the fuck up. So here we go. But before we start the show, let's just give a shout out to all of our loyal fans of the podcast. Once again, we have Chris in Long Island who has given us great insights on the current episode I'm about to give you. I had a long conversation with Chris about the intricacies of thrash music. And this particular episode, of course, is going to be on East Coast thrash music. And we'll get at, we'll get into that in a second. We also like to thank Rich from New Jersey who gave us a lot of good feedback on the Doom episode. Of course, Rich is a um, Doom expert and... Uh, he has, um, you could say Rich has his own uh, genre of music that's associated with him. We call it mustache music, but we'll get into that another time. And uh, Rich uh, really introduced me to a lot of the Doom bands in the early 90s. I think we got a lot of inspiration from him with, with, this, with that particular episode. So uh, he had a lot of credibility in uh, commenting on that episode. There was basically some uh, comments about bands I left out. There were certain bands I left out that... Probably should have been in the Epicus Dumicus Metallicus category, uh, along with Candlemass, and that included a lot of European metal. I like to call them pretty doom bands because they didn't really um, go with the usual themes of American bands. They 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 were kind of gothically acceptable. They were they, they wore makeup and things like that. You know, bands like um, Anathema and My Dying Bride. The bands I don't really like to get into because I just call them pretty doom bands. But nevertheless, they, they could be considered epic doom in the same way as Candlemass, probably inspired by Candlemass more likely. But, you know, they were generally bands of European origin, uh, either maybe English, but most, mostly more of mainland Europe and Scandinavia. So we didn't really include them. So I just want to include that and make a little, maybe a bit of an errata there as for other bands that should have been in the Epicus Dumicus Metallicus category, along with Candlemass. So we covered that. So we thank Rich for giving us feedback on that episode. And we thank any one of you out there for giving us feedback or are about to give us feedback. And once again, that is herelivesmetal at gmail.com. Give us feedback on anything you feel is wrong, or maybe you want to add something. Let us know. We're always listening here at Here Lies Metal. Maledictus might know everything, but he doesn't know everything. He needs some of your knowledge too sometimes. So keep the comments coming, keep the threats coming, keep the death threats, keep the uh, severed horse heads in the mail coming. We love them here at Here Lies Metal. So enough with that. Let's get into the podcast. Today's episode is about thrash metal from the East Coast, not the West Coast, specifically the East Coast, which I have to say was a little more difficult. Doing a lot of research on both coasts there is a lot more prolific metal bands, a lot more important, a lot more significant events in thrash metal going on on the West Coast. I have to admit, maybe even Europe as well. The thrash bands in the 1980s and 90s were a big thing around here. But when you really did the research, there really wasn't that many of them. And I always thought it was a bigger thing than it really was. But doing the research, the bands in this immediate area, they weren't as many as I thought. There were actually quite a few bands from Canada, believe it or not were um, significant. And yeah, Canada's the East Coast, right? They're from Ottawa or Toronto. So that's that can consider that could be considered East. I draw a line of East Coast 
all the way up to, say, New Orleans or Chicago. Uh, anything past that, like if there's a band from Texas, then I will consider them West Coast. We have to draw a line. But anyway, let's get on with this show. Here we go. Okay, here we go. The year is 1984. The era of new wave of British heavy metal is over, and metal has been unleashed upon an unsuspecting and unprepared planet. Metal would be clearing new paths and testing new frontiers in the very decade that would make and break metal. One of those naturally occurring paths would be the cratered urban streets of thrash metal, where battered and rusty old Camaros or Firebirds held together by Bondo barrel down the perilous boulevard to hell, spewing toxic, noxious fumes, some randomly exploding along the way, yet sparing the denim-clad, long-haired trailblazers the inevitable, oncoming nuclear holocaust brought upon us by our corrupt and power-mad leaders. This road heads east, to the east coast, where the thrash would remain mostly at sea level and stay close to the hardcore roots when the majority of metal would become increasingly distant. So put on those big sneakers, slip into that denim battle vest, and tighten that bullet belt, and squeeze into that torn upholstery backseat of that rusty old Pontiac death trap. Hold on tight as your scribe to all things metal takes you on a journey down the road of the East Coast thrash metal and all of its origins. Here we go. As far as I, as far as my research con is concerned, thrash metal had two specific origins. One of them being the new wave of British heavy metal era, and of that, the speed metal genre. Now, like I said before, new wave of British heavy metal, I do not consider a genre. Many people like to put that in a genre. I believe that is a collection of many genres that would form new roads to metal in the 80s. So speed metal, out of that particular genre, I think would be the roots to actual thrash metal. Now, ironically, like I said before, a lot of metal bands were trying to keep themselves distant from punk music during the new wave of British heavy metal era. Thrash music, at least many thrash bands, uh, they held close to those roots, to the roots of hardcore punk and regular punk music, either from England or America. They stayed close to it. They kept close to this sound and let it inspire the future. And of course, th this would uh, ultimately take thrash back into hardcore in some, especially in the East Coast. I think thrash would end up going back into those roots uh, after the great metal crash. It was safer. They, had, they went back to the simple times for safety. So that is a great indication of a cycle where thrash metal would come out of that and eventually try to hide back into it for many bands. It's like, oh no, things aren't going well with our long hair and our big sneakers. Let's uh, shed them and let's cut our hair and get a lot of tattoos and go to the gym and uh, play hardcore music and threaten to beat people up. But that's another episode. We're going to call it the Beat You Up Core episode. And that is specifically, I think, a local New York thing. Of course, it existed in many places, but it was um, the attitude was most uh, significant here in New York of that sort of sound. And I think that has a lot to do with thrash. So those would be our origins of the thrash sound, both East and West Coast. But like I said, we are focusing on the East Coast. Now, of course, Thrash has many geographical locations around the world. And we'll get into the basics of Thrash before we get totally into the East Coast here. Now, like met, like a lot, all the metal I talk about, I like to get into the geography 
of what formed the metal, what the social conditions were in where this metal formed around the world, all corners of this world. Thrash music came from a few different parts of the world. We'll start with the East Coast, and that includes the New York City area or D.C. or or a lot of Canada. We were finding that a lot of very significant thrash bands are coming from the Great White North, eh? Uh, hockey and beer has a lot to do with the formation of your thrash music. I think Canada makes some of the most significant thrash music for the East Coast scene, uh, probably more so than the New York scene. And we're going to get into some Canadian thrash bands. Ultimately, we are going to cover an episode completely on Canadian metal because that's how significant our neighbors to the Great White North with social medicine and education uh, give us. You think it'd be a happy place with all those great things? Well, the Canadians still know how to kick ass with metal. It's funny because a lot of Canadian music I like to consider, you know, when I compare it to a lot of American music, I'm like, well, this is a bit, um, it's a bit corny. This is a bit tacky, isn't it? Uh, you know, even Rush can be that way sometimes. We love Rush, but sometimes it's like, oh, this is a little, this is a little Canadian, isn't it? You know, there's a lot of Canadian music. Or look at like someone like Justin Bieber. I mean, it's terrible. It's from Canada. There's a lot of Canadian acts, especially in the pop area, that are just pretty awful. But their metal was spot on. Metal from Canada, all right? We, we are never bashing Canada on their metal. I myself am a Canadian citizen, actually. That's a complicated story, but I'll let you in on that. So when uh, this country gets uh, completely fucked up by our leaders, I will say hasta la vista, baby. And I will go to Canada. Well, uh, I will eject out of this flaming wreckage of America when uh, the time comes, people. Let's continue on with the geography of Thrash. Some bands that might come from the East Coast, like good examples of bands would be Anthrax, Nuclear Assault, Carnivore, Overkill, MOD, SOD. You know, MOD slash SOD, similar members. Um, then we can get to the West Coast. Uh, the West Coast, of course, is mainly in the San Francisco area. And of course, all of the biggest bands in thrash would really come from the San Francisco area. And in my research, I found that most of the events in thrash were going on on the West Coast, unfortunately. We will cover that next time. Might be even a longer episode since there's so much more to say on the West Coast. Now, some bands, of course, from the West Coast, um, all of California, I mean, not just San Francisco, would be Slayer. Slayer is a very uh, legitimate example of a thrash band. Though they are a more extreme form of thrash, I might say. Uh, they're a little bit more than the big sneaker thrash bands of San Francisco. A Slayer really kind of came out there with the makeup and the spikes, whereas a lot of thrash bands in San Francisco are really just bare bones. That didn't really fly with them. And I thank uh, Ron out there for that fact, for bringing that to my attention, that Slayer would uh, come to San Francisco and really get laughed at because they would come out in makeup and spikes and the people in San Francisco weren't having it. Bands like Exodus and Testament and Death Angel, uh, they were just keeping it down to the bare bones. They were keeping it down to the street. So that's, uh, you know, it, it's funny how geography really changes the way. And it's typical from L.A., you know, that someone's going to come and make up. It's just the L.A. thing to just be over the top. Even Slayer. Slayer is guilty of it, of being over the top. But those were some bands that, of course, would be from the West Coast. Slayer, Testament, Exodus, Death Angel. Uh, and of course, uh, we were like, well, what about Metallica? What about Megadeth? All right, let's, 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 let's say something about Metallica and Megadeth. They are, of course, Megadeth didn't come out till 85, but their first album wasn't out till 85, but Metallica obviously was in the right time and place for the beginnings of Thrash. However, I believe it is my controversial theory that Metallica and Megadeth are not really Thrash bands. 
They have some thrash-like music. They are both a major influence on thrash music, a very, the most significant influence on thrash music. But think about Metallica's first album, Kill Em All. It is really a continuation of the new wave of British heavy metal sound in speed metal. It is a speed metal album with a very British sound. It's, it's the ultimate result of new wave of British heavy metal. It really is. And Megadeth is the result of, of being angry at Metallica. That's really what it is. It's like, I'm going to make an even more heavy and angry album than Kill Em All. And Dave Mustaine did a great job in that. And Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good. Uh, which was a really good first album, a very uh, furious first album. However, it's not that thrash. You know why Metallica and Megadeth aren't thrash? Because they're too good. They have, both bands have a very unique sound. The level of musicianship in their guitars is significant and unique. It, it's really special. It really stands out. And thrash is really at the dirt level. Real thrash is at the dirt level. Uh, no one ever said anything really significant uh, talent-wise came out of Exodus or Anthrax because bands like that are really just street-level thrash bands. And that is what true thrash should be. It's very close to the punk rock. It's very close to the dirt. It's very close to the ground. Uh, whereas Metallica, there's just something about their sound that does not make them thrash for most of their songs. And they got a little bit thrashy in maybe Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. And Megadeth would get a little bit thrashy maybe in their first album, second album, third album. However, not they're, they're just their songs are just too complicated to be thrash. However, there's no doubt about it that they are a major influence on the thrash sound, both east and west coast. So, well, we might make an entire episode of what isn't thrash, and of course that will center around Metallica and Megadeth and, and certain other bands that people like to call thrash. Everyone, of course, in the music industry accepts Metallica as thrash. Even Metallica probably accepts themselves as thrash, but I, Maledictus, have to disagree. Metallica is not. Rash. All right. Now let's get on with the geography. I like to rant. That's the way I do things. I just rant. I get on a subject and I just take it on for a flight into space, go around the moon, and I come back. And here we are. We're back. There is a European thrash scene, which is very significant. Not that much different in sound to the American scene. I mean, I, I would say they might be influenced by the same bands of, from England that uh, inspired the first thrash bands. We're going to get into that in the playlist, of course. The Eurothrash scene, bands like Creator um, and Sodom are very good examples of European German thrash, bands from Germany. So they have a specific sound. It's um, probably a little closer to Venom than uh, it, it's, it's a little more conservative to the new wave of British heavy metal than our bands are. But nevertheless, it is thrash and it still is thrash today. Those bands exist today. Of course, then we have the South American scene, a lot of Brazilian bands and that would include bands like Sepultura, Sarcophago, and Volcano. That would really, it would take them a while to really break in America. It wasn't probably till like, I don't know, the late 80s when you started hearing about these bands. Or they are significant today, and they are revered today contributors to the thrash sound. So we give credit to the north, the east, the south, and the west of thrash music. It comes from all corners of the world. So let's move on to the sounds of thrash. Now... Thrash, of course, has specific lyrical themes that help identify it as its own genre, both east or west. And a lot of thrash songs involve political themes, if you haven't noticed. Uh, some are very patriotic. Others are anti-patriotic. Some maybe uh, are a little closer to their punk rock roots when it comes to lyrics. But either way, there is always perhaps songs about some sort of political strife 
in thrash songs. And we'll get into that in our playlist as we go on our playlist. We'll point that out where songs are getting political. Another reoccurring theme on thrash, and this occurred for most of the street-level thrash bands, and even Metallica and Megadeth obviously would sing about this once in a while, is be nuclear war. Thrash just seems to be nuclear-fueled. There was always uh, some sort of atomic explosion on the cover art. Something like that. There's something, or just some, some completely street-level, tongue-in-cheek song about nuclear war uh, by you know, some street-level thrash band, you know, without any sophistication, or maybe just uh, a sarcastic song about nuclear war. But nuclear war is a reoccurring theme in thrash from all over the world. It's what really makes thrash is nuclear war. I could say it gets into death metal a little bit, too. That probably came from the roots of thrash. The obsession with world destruction. Remember, a lot of the songs were written in the 1980s when nuclear war uh, was a significant threat. As it, I guess it's always a threat. As long as there are nuclear missiles in bunkers, as long as there are nuclear missiles in silos, as long as there are nuclear weapons around the world, nuclear war is always a threat. But However, it was in the 80s, it was like this likely thing. It's like, well, it's not if, it's when. Nuclear war is going to happen, so let's thrash out. Let's wear our big snakers and uh, let's thrash the fuck out every day because we don't know when the world's going to end. I think that nihilistic attitude was really what powered thrash. So nuclear war as a constant theme of thrash metal from all over the world. Another reoccurring theme that I mentioned before would be patriotism. SOD is guilty of almost Trump-like patriotism sometimes. Uh, and that occurs in a lot of thrash bands in a way. Of course, thrash bands politically are really um, kind of extreme whether it's on the right or left, I don't think there's really too many centrist thrash bands. It's either black or white with a lot of bands. They fall on either side of the spectrum. So patriotism is a popular theme in thrash music. Now, the style of thrash, the sound style, the sonic style of thrash, of course, is significant. And thrash, like most metal at the time, would be most identified by heavy palm-muted guitars played at a... A faster BPM for the most part. Uh, obviously, that sound occurs in a lot of metal, but thrash would really take it to a new level of aggression for that time. Like that sound you heard in thrash, that was new to where guitarists were attacking the guitars and bass players were attacking the guitars. And speaking of bass players, uh, a specific bass tone took place in thrash, and it was really a new thing for the mid 80s. And it's really prevalent in songs by Overkill, I would say, or Exodus. Um, and that is really the use of very bright bass tones. Bass played with a pick except in, instead of fingers for most of these bass players. A mostly percussive and clicky sound that um, is very prevalent in the song instead of in the background. Uh, Megadeth might have the sound too. It's a clean bass tone, non-distorted, but very bright and perhaps a wet sound with maybe with chorus on it. Didn't really give the songs too much low-end um, beef and to me, I think at the time it got really annoying to me. I always kind of preferred a more heavier, low-end sound. But thrash would really pioneer that area of the spectrum. Another um, thrash institution of thrash would be the machine gun double bass. Very prevalent in bands like Carnivore or Exodus or Slayer or even Metallica sometimes. And uh, especially Megadeth, they give them a warlike sound. Now vocals in thrash could be... Um, very different. They might go from wails to shouts to more of a grind. There were a lot of almost older metal sounding, almost Iron Maiden, more Bruce Dickinson inspired 
vocals in many songs, and more heavy shouters, sort of like Pete Steele of Carnivore. So Thrash really covered an entire spectrum of voice styles. Uh, however, it didn't really get to the growls and the grunts of death metal, which that would be musicians taking Thrash and claiming Thrash is just isn't heavy enough anymore. We've got to take it to a new level. And that's really how death metal formed, and of course, death metal will get its and higher, the uh, Tampa death metal scene will get its own episode, of course, and how that was really based on the thrash sound. Uh, that was really a reaction to the thrash sound. It was an enhancement of the thrash sound, you could say, for people that didn't think things were heavy enough. One more significant pillar of thrash, of course. Endless guitar solos. The guitar solo was alive and well during the thrash era in the 1980s and the 1990s. You could say when a lot of music was toning down the solos in the 90s, uh, the existing thrash bands were still soloing it up. The shredding, um, it was mostly shredding. There weren't too many guitar players with a significant amount of technique in uh, the thrash scene, but there were, there were a number of guitarists that would stand out that had some technique, uh, mainly a guy like Andy Skolnick of Testament. And and you could say there, there are certain bands that have, that had really guitar virtuosos, but most thrash bands, I would say, just really had shredders. For example, Kerry King of Slayer or Jeff Hanneman, they're really just shredders. I, I wouldn't really call them good guitarists. They are just masters at shredding without feeling. And that really works for the Slayer sound. Danny Spitz from Anthrax, really just a shredder. Nothing. There's nothing special going on in his sound. And that's really what Thrash was all about. The more notes, the better. Too many notes, good. Another thing about Thrash is, um, is the occasional random light part. And I think that comes from a lot of maybe Judas Priest or Iron Maiden influence and you know eventually of course metallica would do it a lot and i think that would really push a lot of the modern thrash bands to have the random light part like for example a lot of thrash songs would begin with an acoustic intro and then they would go into the heavy part i think that came from a lot of iron maiden and metallica i would say uh, it's like hey look we could play our instruments see We're, we have an acoustic part for some reason that was really big in 1980s thrash songs to have an acoustic intro or maybe an acoustic interlude or like just a light part and, of course, they were ballads and thrash as well. I know Testament had a few ballads. Metallica, of course, had ballads. It's like, hey, look, we could, we have feeling too. You know, it's not all about thrashing. So that would be bigger, of course, I think, with the West Coast bands. I think the West Coast bands had a bit more talent for the most part than the East Coast bands. The East Coast bands really were not as dynamic. But we're stuck on the East Coast today. We're stuck in the dingy, dim East Coast. We will hit sunny California next time. Thrash as a subgenre of metal would have micro-genres, as most sub-genres have. We, as music snobs, we like to cut genres down into smaller genres, and sometimes we even cut those genres down into even smaller genres, but we're not going to go that far. So thrash is a sub-genre. I personally have identified a few different sub-micro-genres uh, within thrash. This is not the official word on the street. Some people keep it simpler. Maybe some people take it to a higher level. But these are my interpretations of thrash genres. So here we go. Uh, the first subgenre or the micro genre of thrash, I think it's called street thrash. Now, street thrash could be classified with a band like Exodus. That they have a street sound, a simple street sound, but though it's not a it's not really the crossover sound yet, which we'll get into. Uh, street sound is sort of like the basic bare bones thrash sound that is just closest to the ground. That's why they call it street thrash. It's it's thrash for the outside. It's not Metallica. 
You know, that, of course, is, uh, if you want to call that thrash, if you insist on calling that thrash, there is no street in Metallica's sound. I would say Exodus might be the best example of a street band. I would not call Slayer a street band. They're obviously not on the street. They're in hell somewhere. But that's what you can really find if you're looking for that type of sound. The street is, of course, another street thrash band might be Overkill. Very good example of a street band from New Jersey, and no better place to have a street thrash band than from New Jersey. It's a street kind of place, I know. I am here in New Jersey. Uh, I think Death Angel is a good example of street thrash. Of course, these are West Coast, uh, but I think a band like Testament would not be a street. They have a lot of talent. They're almost, uh, Testament exists in a different area of thrash, I would say. Uh, another microgenre I like to, I've identified my, on my own, and it's not a very in-depth genre i would say would be i like to call it war thrash <laughs> and it's really more of a theme thing than a sound than more of a sound though i think war thrash involves a lot of machine gun double bass drums i think my favorite example of war thrash would be a band like carnivore they mostly sing of warfare and death and uh, patriotism and nuclear war so it's you know it's one of my arbitrary genres of course um However, one official genre of thrash is probably the most popular genre of thrash, and I think it mostly takes place on the East Coast, is crossover thrash. I mean, mostly, but not only. A good example of crossover thrash on the East Coast, um, a band such as S.O.D. or M.O.D., uh, it is thrash acts like S.O.D. and M.O.D. that remain very close to the hardcore roots um, you could say on the West Coast, of course, Suicidal Tendencies is the perfect example of crossover thrash. A DRI is um, a prime example of, of crossover thrash. Of course, that's West Coast. They're from Texas. Uh, there are, of course, some modern crossover thrash bands around today. Uh, thrash, re um, I call it revivalist thrash bands, I like to call them, and we'll get into those. Bands like Iron Reagan and Municipal Waste, uh, they stay very close to their hardcore roots. That's a very good example of crossover thrash. And crossover thrash, like I said, it, it's really below the street level in the sewer of, of where thrash should be. And it's a great example of uh, thrash staying close to the roots it, uh, that it, thrash had come from. Um, another example of, another arbitrary example of thrash that I made up here would be Death Thrash. I mean, I think Slayer is the ultimate example, the ultimate prime example of Death Thrash. It's a form of thrash that not close to the street, it's not under the street, it's not in the sky, it is in hell. And it's thrash that really probably came directly from the Venom sound, and that probably is the bridge between Venom and Death Metal. I would think a lot of Death Metal bands were inspired by Slayer, Slayer is a lot more, I would say, satanically themed and horror themed and murdery themed than most thrash bands. Like I said, most thrash bands are talking about the street or politics or nuclear war, whereas Slayer is just talking about massive death and Satan. And of course, it's it's obviously all tongue in cheek subjects. There's by no means a Slayer, some sort of murderous band of hate mongers. Um, they have a lot of uh, perhaps Third Reich themes as well. However, we know Slayer are not are not Nazis in any way. They just like this negative image imagery that really might uh, disturb or offend people. 
And that's what really makes a death thrash band. And I don't know if it's a real genre accepted, but I'm maledictus, so I'm making my own genres. And death thrash is Slayer. Uh, finally, we have something I like to call pseudo thrash. And that were, is where I'm going to have to put bands like Metallica or Megadeth in their, you know, in their more mid-career albums. I can't consider these bands thrash. There's just too much evidence against it. They have some songs that are thrash-like. I would say Metallica's song, maybe Trapped Under Ice, is thrash-like. However, but then they go and do something complicated on the next song. So it's like, well, that's not thrash anymore. Uh, I was trying to identify Megadeth as thrash on their first album. Killing is my business, and business is good. It, of course, is a little bit thrashy, but then at the same time... You hear those guitar runs, those furious guitar runs by Dave Mustaine. And you could just hear the fury in his guitar playing and in his voice that he is just so angry that he got thrown out of Metallica. He is furious. And it's such a good example of an album to get out your aggression to is Megadeth's debut album, Killing Him's My Business. And business is good. It's really the perfect uh, revenge album. And I was trying to find thrash in that album and you get a little bit close to it, but it's just not there. It's just not a thrash album. And it's during the year of the ultimate year of thrash, which is 1985. I would say that's when the thrash bands were all really breaking. I would say 1983 is a little too early for thrash. You know, bands that would become thrash like Anthrax uh, aren't really that thrashy yet, but they will get there. And there were a lot of Canadian bands like Exciter or Razor that were around during that time. However, um, and they, are, of course, are pioneering the sound from the north, and a lot of people don't even notice them. But the thrash would really, the true street thrash sound, especially on the East Coast, wouldn't emerge till I would say, the mid-1980s. And it would go on through the 90s. And it would be damaged by the Great Fall in Metal, of course. And thrash would, of course, evolve into something else for the most part. For some bands, other bands would stay true. But... So that is the sounds. Those are the micro-genres of thrash that I, Maledictus, have identified for your thrashy delight. Now, during the 1980s, like I said, you could say there was a great metal surge in all sorts of genres of metal, in every genre of metal, whether it was hair metal, uh, whether it was thrash metal, whether it was just regular metal, and if there would be new paths of metal forming every day. There would be a new path to death metal. There would be a new path to black metal forming. It all... It all really surfaced in the 1980s. All the sorts of metal that we have today, a lot of it, whether it be doom metal, it all really came about in the 1980s. So the record labels knew about this. They were basically, at one point, by 1995, they were like, we have to sign everything that has long hair that we see. And I really got a good in-depth um, street-level version of this story. I had did an interview with Bobby Blitz from Overkill a few years ago with my magazine publication, monkeygoosemag.com. You could see that on YouTube. I will put up the link. And Bobby had told me he was trying to get signed. He was working in the city as a stagehand at the time. And he obviously was aware of what was going on on the scene. Everyone was getting signed. And so he told me he, he would basically drop off demos at the record label every day. I think it was maybe Electric Records at the time. Whatever was nearby where he worked at the time. And he knew it was going to happen, you know, eventually because... There was one point where just every thrash band and every metal band was just getting signed by a major label. Uh, it had occurred that uh, probably by 84, Metallica was picked up by Elektra Records. Uh, they were no longer going to be on Megaforce. They were no longer going to be on the small record label. They got picked up by the big record label. 
of the same thing. In fact, it was a famous show that Metallica, Raven, and Anthrax played. And of course, Metallica got picked up. It's like they all got to go home with hot chicks. So Metallica gets go, goes home with Elektra. Raven, <laughs> of course, you know, not really a thrash band, but nevertheless a significant metal band, uh, goes home with Atlantic Records, and Anthrax, uh, Anthrax doesn't go home with anyone. Poor Anthrax. Anthrax is always the band that got left behind. However, we still have them today, and they are still an amazing band. And they are perfectly okay with their status as usually an opening band for the bigger bands. But you know what? They're okay with that. They're grateful for what they have, and they're still doing well. They've been there as long as Metallica. They've, they've always been there, and they will always be respected. So we just, you know, we give a shout-out to Anthrax for always being left behind. But they'll eventually make it. They're like the little engine that could. Another important aspect of thrash music is the cover art. For a lot of the more underground thrash bands, I would say, I would say the bigger thrash bands didn't really uh, display, didn't really use the cover art. But there was a cover artist by the name of Ed Repka. And if you look up his artwork, we're going to put a link up to his artwork. It's a really amazing form of artwork. It is the perfect artwork for covers of thrash albums. And he, he, did, he would do a lot of death metal albums as well. He's famous for his, his album covers for the band Death. But his albums have a very unique look to them where the subject of the cover is always engaging with the viewer of the art. Like there's always someone doing something devious in the cover of a re of an Ed Replica piece. That's he's, he's looking at you, the viewer, and he's like, look what I'm doing. I'm doing this fucked up thing. I'm pressing this nuclear button. And he's always looking at you. That's really what's unique about Ed Repka's artwork. So I just noticed that in my research, I found a lot of artwork by Ed Repka. He is really the artist of thrash and a lot of metal at the time. And I believe he's he's still doing cover artwork today. The resurgent thrash bands of today. Uh, Ed Repka is still doing their artwork. I think he's doing Municipal Waste. He's still in effect and his artwork is of course great. So we got to give a shout out to Ed Repka for really giving us the visuals and the wonderful world of cover art, which I love. So if you're a record collector, cover art just means so much to you. So Ed Repka is the visual man of the history of thrash metal all over the world, east, west, north, south, doesn't matter. Now, though I just mentioned thrash, was, of course, was getting signed by many rec by many major record labels, it never really hit the full mainstream. Of course, they were videos on the MTV. However, it would always be in the gutters compared to the hair metal that was going on at the time. And in the 90s, when the great metal crash happened, there was still thrash. However, thrash still wasn't really thriving in the mainstream. Um, it was really underneath the Metallicas and the Panteras during the, during the 90s. And then, you you know, you had new Metal, which I believe might have actually been partly inspired by Thrash. I think a lot of Thrash bands would really go into a new Metal sound. Bands that might have started as Thrash bands. Of course, not all bands remain Thrash bands for their whole careers. They were like, hey, oh, the sound is changing. We need to change, too. But thrash, I think, itself would always sort of remain in the gutters. It would never really break out. And like I said, unless you consider bands like Metallica, Megadeth, I would say Anthrax would be the most the most popular, mainstream, significant band that could be considered a thrash band. But sometimes I look at Anthrax and I'm like, are they really a thrash band? And I have to, I have to draw a line somewhere. A lot of times I want to take people out of the thrash because I don't think they're street enough. But Anthrax, we'll, we'll keep them as a thrash band. I'd say Anthrax, when they first started, weren't really that thrashy with Dan Lilker and Neil Turbin. Another important, significant icon in thrash metal, especially for the East Coast, now that we're talking about the East Coast, I have to give credit to 
a local hero, Johnny Zazula and Megaforce Records. Now, Johnny, we used to have a record store, I believe, down in Old Ridge. And basically, he was importing a lot of music that at the time, this is the pre-internet times, uh, music that you could not get in America for the most part. There was no internet now, so you probably never heard of it. And if, if you didn't go to his store, you probably learned a lot about music that was going on around the world because there was no other place you were going to hear about it. So he would really bring that sound to a lot of bands here. And of course, with his record label, Megaforce, he would sign a lot of bands that would be very significant to metal and thrash. One of those bands, of course, is Metallica. He got them to come all the way from the West Coast and really uh, have a major influence on East Coast thrash metal, even though they are a iconic West Coast band. Of course, Anthrax, of course, would be signed by Megaforce. Bands like Overkill would also be signed by Megaforce. Johnny Z really brought forth all the East Coast thrash, all the major East Coast thrash names. It would be Johnny Z, who's still alive today, and his legacy lives on. There was actually an organization here uh, that might have thrived off of the whole Johnny Z scene called the, uh, the, the Old Bridge Metal Militia. And this is basically a bunch of guys that does a benefit every year, which I attend every year. Uh, down in Old Bridge, New Jersey. And these are, I, I look at them as a bunch of guys that hung out with Metallica about 40 years ago when uh, Johnny Z had brought them here to record their first album. And they are still celebrating that night. They're like, do you remember that time we hung out with Metallica 40 years ago? That was awesome. Well, I don't blame them. You know, that's what they do. And it's, these guys are a great bunch of people. And I go, I go to their show, the Bulldozer Bash, every year during the summer. It's great. It's great fun. Um... It's all you could drink, beer and food. You pay to get in. It's great. It's I. It's totally worth going. And they give out prizes, some certain metal memorabilia, signed drums and guitars and stuff by guys from Slayer or Metallica, which is really cool. So I recommend getting involved with the Old Bridge Metal Militia. And uh, you could say they say it came from that whole Johnny Z scene back in the early 80s. The guy who really brought us the first indicate. He really brought the East Coast thrash sound to us. And he brought the entire thrash sound to possibly America. So we give Johnny Z credit. He's still alive today as a great patron saint of thrash music. Now, all right, I am running out of throat power here. My throat is getting sore because I'm talking so much. Let me drink something here. Hold on. It is time to get into the playlist. I think we are an hour into this show before the edits. And uh, I haven't played a song yet because I am just ranting about East Coast thrash. But there's so much to say. And wait till we get to the West Coast. I'll probably go for two hours without even starting a song. We've got to get to this playlist, people. This playlist is, of course, 25 songs long again. But we've got to cover it. We've got to, I'm going to be in-depth with Here Lies Metal. I'm not going to cut corners. If this takes a long time, if it takes me forever for the rest of eternity to bring the message of metal to you, the listener, then we're going to do it. I have plenty of time. So I'm just going to keep on talking about metal, and I hope you give me some feedback and you even disagree with me on certain things I'm saying here today. Here lies metal at gmail.com. Contact, contact me about all of the bullshit I just told you. Most of it's off the cuff. It's based on research, but a lot of it's off the cuff. My own personal experiences. Thanks for listening to this show if you're all listening out there, and I hope you're enjoying the show so far. So here we go. Without any further delay, Let's come out of orbit and land here back on Earth and get this playlist done. All right, now for this playlist, by the way, we're going to start with the origins 
uh, fragile. These first few bands you're going to hear are not necessarily East Coast bands. They might be from all around the world. However, they are, of course, are, as I do in my playlist, I'd like to do an evolution of a certain metal subject. So East Coast Thrash, these are bands that really influenced the, the thrash sound in general, and of course, specifically the East Coast sound. So here we go with the playlist. This is Taking Out the Thrash, the evolution of East Coast thrash metal. Here we go. And the playlist begins. Now, we're gonna start with the bands that were major influences of the thrash scene of the East Coast, West Coast, North and South, and everywhere in the world. This, of course, is the infamous Judas Priest. This is one of the first forms of real heavy metal. Judas Priest, of course, is from the wonderful, lovely town of Birmingham, England. We've went over this before. We've covered Judas Priest before. We don't have to get into detail who Judas Priest is. We do have to get into what they are playing here. This is a perfect example. This song, of course, is Hellbent for Lela from the British Steel album. Now, no, I think no one taught us how to say metal more than Rob Halford, right? He says, he says metal. He doesn't say metal. He's the first guy to say metal. And that's how we say metal from now on, don't we? Because of Rob Halford. Judas Priest really covered, they really influenced all forms of metal by the way we say it and by the way we dress and by the way we play it. Of course, listen to the, if you listen to the music here, this is a good example of where thrash came from. This is before the new wave of British heavy metal era. And this, of course, would inf influence that and therefore would influence thrash. So I don't want to go too far into the history of what form of thrash. Of course, we can go back to Black Sabbath and before that. But let's start here at Judas Priest as the starting point of thrash for obvious reasons. Now, this, of course, is Overkill by Motorhead from the Overkill album. I mean, if a famous East Coast thrash band names themselves after your song, I think this is an important part of Thrash, don't you? Of course, we've been over Motorhead already. I don't have to get into detail about who Motorhead is. Uh, not really a metal band, but nevertheless a major influence on all metal, whether it's Thrash or Doom or anything. Uh, and of course, why is this influential on Thrash and all and New Wave of British Heavy Metal? Listen to that double bass. Is this the first example of a full-on machine gun double bass? It very well might be, besides some Judas Priest songs. This is a pretty ridiculous song. Especially the way halfway through the song it stops and then it comes back in. It's like, oh no, we're not done yet. We're still, we're still overkilling you. So, Overkill by Motorhead. Totally influential on all thrash music altogether. And we're going to do a couple of songs on the influence of thrash before we actually get into the East Coast playlist. So, Motorhead with Overkill from the Overkill album, Ultimate Thrash Influence. Now, if you have a thrash playlist and in a history of thrash playlist, then you need Venom. Venom, of course, is one of the first bands to really have evil metal lyrics. Uh, there's no doubt about it that Slayer is completely and totally indebted to Venom for their entire career as is the entire death metal scene, as is the entire black metal scene, as is most of Thrash. I mean, if you listen to Venom, they are really giving you the first indication of Thrash guitar and Thrash drums, and that's a real metal band. And Venom is the first metal band to really sing about ritual satanic violence. It, it's Venom. And this song, of course, is titled 
Raise the Dead from the Black Metal album. I have a feeling that Venom is going to be a part of many of our playlists to come. Tis simply the natural way of metal. I believe some fake form of Venom exists today that's titled Venom Incorporated, but I don't know much about that. We'll find out. Venom with Raise the Dead. This next band is from Hermosa Beach, California, and they are called Black Flag. You know Black Flag, they are a, a rather early example of a hardcore punk band. Uh, you might know them by their work with Henry Rollins. However, this is pre-Henry Rollins' Black Flag with Keith Morris, who is the real Black Flag guy. This is, this is real Black Flag. And this is a major influence on thrash metal. This would be one of the more punk rock hardcore influences on thrash metal as I went over that thrash is inspired by new wave British heavy metal, speed metal, and punk. So this is a perfect example of punk music that clearly inspired thrash music of all over the world. And this is Black Flag with Wasted. This next song, of course, is obviously Iron Maiden with Another Life from their Killers album. And there is no question about it that Iron Maiden is a major influence on the thrash metal sound to the far corners of this earth. This is an older Iron Maiden with Paul Diano, an Iron Maiden that's closer to their punk rock roots, of course, which they probably vehemently deny. However, there's no question about it. Iron Maiden had a simple sound back then, a very accessible sound back then. And this particular sound and its aggression and its speed would inspire the future of thrash metal. There are a lot of uh, mainstream thrash metal bands that clearly uh, are influenced by the sound of Iron Maiden. Anthrax is a perfect example. I would say the bass style of Frankie Bello are very similar to the bass styles of Steve Harris. Iron Maiden would challenge all metal bands of the future to try to actually learn their instruments like professionals. And once again, this is Iron Maiden with Another Life from their Killers album. Essential metal for all of eternity. This next band is from the East Coast. We were talking about them before. Of course, this is the Misfits with Blood Feast. This is from their Earth AD album, which were was their first album featuring Doyle, who we were talking about before, the heavy guitar sound of Doyle. And there's no question about it that the Misfits influenced all thrash. Hailing from the shitty New Jersey town of Lodi, New Jersey, Misfits would make a big dent in all of metal. You'd see many of your thrash heroes wearing Misfits uh, symbols and crimson skulls, um, most notably Cliff Burton from Metallica. It's ironic how the Misfits would become metal icons in the time after their breakup in the early 80s, by so many bands worshipping their sound rather than when they were actually around like many bands, you might say. But of course, the Misfits are back these days and, and selling overpriced tickets at a giant arena. The irony is just too much to deal with. But there's no doubt about it. The Misfits are a major influence on all thrash metal. This is the Misfits with Blood Feasts from the Earth AD album, the heaviest of all of the Misfits albums. Now, we have here, of course, Metallica from their Kill em All album, No Remorse. Now, like I said before, Metallica is not thrash, but they are a major influence on all thrash to come and much metal to come. They, of course, are West Coast, but it doesn't matter. This is the album that, of course, John Zazula brought to us from Megaforce Records, an album that would change metal history forever, whether you like Metallica or not. They are legends today. 
this song and this entire album would be the reason why we got a lot of our thrash metal today. It's one of the main reasons. This would probably influence more of the mainstream acts. Metallica was a band that came to the East Coast with a shitty van in a U-Haul and would go on to be the very face of heavy metal along with Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. How do you like that? Metallica with No Remorse from the Kill 'Em All album. And now we will be getting into the actual East Coast playlist, chronologically, of course, uh, by when these songs were released. And the first entry on this playlist is kind of a surprising one. And this song is titled Loss of Words by none other but Corrosion of Conformity. Now, Corrosion of Conformity is a band you, you consider, you identify as a doom metal band these days. However, the early days of Corrosion of Conformity, they were entirely a thrash metal band before the days of Pepper Keenan, who gave them the New Orleans sound. Corrosion of Conformity, of course, is from Raleigh, North Carolina. That makes them East Coast, I would say. Uh, they're not from the urban area that we associate thrash with, but these guys had the sound pretty well figured out. They, of course, are directly influenced by punk rock. I think their first album was a lot more punk rock. And this album, which is called Animosity, is a famous album in the timeline of thrash metal. And it's amazing how so many bands might change their sound from one thing to another due to changes of members. And Corrosion and Cormody is a great example of that. But these are the days of Corrosion and Conformity as a thrash band, which I always found very interesting because I always thought they were just a doom band. So Corrosion of Conformity with Loss of Words. Now, let's take it to the north with the band Razor. This is one of those obscure Canadian thrash bands that if you were a real thrasher, you knew about these guys. However, in the mainstream, these guys would, I say these guys were mostly under the radar from the north and there are a lot of great thrash bands from the north and Razor is a perfect example of an extremely influential east coast thrash band since they're from the Ottawa area that includes them on the east coast. We're going to include like I said Canadian bands on this particular episode because as long as they're in the east of Canada. This song is titled City of Damnation from the Executioner's Song album. That isn't a thrash album name. I don't know what is. Now, of course, Razor might have not been too popular in America. However, they were considered one of the Canadian big four in thrash metal. So there's no, there, we have different music scenes going on, obviously. And Razor was a major part of the Canadian thrash metal music scene. And of course, Razor is still making records today. So they didn't just give up. They keep thrash going. Once again, Razor with City of Damnation, hockey, beer, and metal, motherfuckers. Now, here's a real example. This is a prime example, the most significant example of East Coast thrash. And this, of course, is Anthrax, one of the big four. And like I said before, Anthrax always seemed to get left behind, but nevertheless, they never gave up. This, of course, is called Madhouse from the Spreading the Disease album, their second album, their first album, to feature uh, Joey Belladonna on vocals, following their initial release, Fistful of Metal, featuring Neil Turbin on vocals and uh, Dan Wilker on bass, who would go on to form Nuclear Assault. The band was, of course, formed by Scott Ian, who has been the main member of the band for its entire existence. They would go through a number of lineup changes until they found their core members, 
in Frankie Bello and Charlie Benante and Joey Belladonna would go on. They'd go on through more lineup changes to the future. However, Anthrax exists today and is going strong today, playing a lot of shows today. I believe they'll be playing uh, in Slayer's last tour. So still a significant band and still the face of what appears to be true thrash metal these days. Anthrax with Madhouse. This next band is called Stormtroopers of Death with their song Kill Yourself. These guys had very quick crossover songs. This is a prime example of crossover thrash, still very close to the punk hardcore scene. Now, interesting enough, this band features Scott Ian of Anthrax on guitar, Charlie Benante on drums of Anthrax, Dan Lilkler on bass, formerly of Anthrax, and of course, Billy Milano on the words. This song, this, uh, this is on an album called Speak English or Die. A lot of people like to accuse these guys of being the soundtrack for the current Trump presidency. However, the members uh, featuring Scott Ian claim it was really just an album just to piss people off. Now, this album is a really good example of sort of patriotic or tongue-in-cheek thrash. Um, Stormtroopers of Death have a lot of, you could say, comical, sarcastic songs about things, and a lot of people consider them of being racist, things like that. However, please consider the climate they existed in. It is the 1980s, and as you know, a lot more got by back then in terms of political correctness. So, Storm Jesus of Death with Kill Yourself, authentic crossover thrash metal of the 80s. This next band is called Whiplash, and they are from Passaic, New Jersey, the place where metal will fucking kill you. These guys are a prime example of New Jersey East Coast thrash. This song is called Last Man Alive. Whiplash was a band that was signed on Roadrunner Records, another major proponent of this fast scene on the East Coast. And they have come and gone over the decades, uh, disbanding in the early 90s and reforming again in the 90s. And they have recently reformed and have been on tour. They actually played at Dingbats, I think, a few months ago. So Whiplash, of course, uh, maybe takes their name after the Metallica song, who knows? However, they are uh, far more thrash than Metallica will ever be. This song is titled Last Man Alive from their Power in Pain album, from their first album. So Whiplash, New Jersey East Coast Thrash Metal. This next band has the perfect thrash metal name, and that is Nuclear Assault. They, of course, are from New York City, formed by former bass player of Anthrax, Dan Lilker, and one of their many singers before they had Belladonna, John Conley, and these guys want to basically take the sound and make it even heavier. I mean, what a name, Nuclear Assault. It's, it's the ultimate New York thrash band. This song is titled Stranded in Hell from the Game Over album. It's clear that bassist Dan Lickler would be a reoccurring name in this playlist as he is probably the ambassador of all East Coast thrash metal in the New York scene. Nuclear Assault is also a perfect example of crossover thrash, and they are one of the prime um, instigators of, I would say, the new thrash metal scene we have today. And best of all, they are still on tour this day after many breakups and reformations like many thrash bands. There's obviously a market for thrash again and a lot of retro music. So Nuclear Assault with Stranded in Hell. Also from New Jersey, we have Overkill with Power Surge from the infamous 
taking over album. Listen to that bass. That is the ultimate thrash bass right there by D.D. Verney. Now, Overkill, to me, was always the most popular band to be closest to home. Of course, they are from uh, Old Bridge, New Jersey, I believe, the home of real metal in all of New Jersey. And these guys are one of the most perfect examples of East Coast thrash metal in history. Over the years, the band has gone through many lineup changes and consists of two core members, uh, Bobby Blitz and D.D. Verney. I got a good chance to get an interview with Bobby Blitz, who shared with me a lot of origin stories on the formation of Overkill and how he really got into the scene and how the scene was back in his day in 1985 when Overkill was formed. Overkill proudly claims their roots in punk rock and new wave British heavy metal, of course. And I like to consider them a member of the next big four with Exodus, Testament, and Suicidal, four bands with way more thrash credibility than the initial big four. Overkill is a band that's never gone away. They've been releasing albums since 1985 and do so to this day. They are the most consistent thrash band in existence, Overkill with Power Surge. This next band is a group of upstate New York Italian metal rednecks, and they are called Toxic with a K, with an I-K, and what a perfect thrash sound we are hearing here. This is what I think of when I think of thrash. It's this, guys. And this song is titled Social Overlord from their World Circus album featuring artwork from the Ed, famous Ed Repka. Toxic released their first album in 1987 on Roadrunner Records, probably the height of the thrash metal scene in the area. And these guys have more of a metal, a traditional wailing metal vocal than maybe more of a screaming kind of aggressive vocal. And I find that's a typical vocal trait from the upstate New York scene. Like, for example, like Man of War or even from a guy like Dio, all from upstate New York. Toxic was a very short-lived band, only releasing about two or three albums in their short career. However, um, they recently reformed today. Uh, due to obvious reasons, because everyone's doing it. They are just simply jumping on the revivalist thrash bandwagon, just like all the new bands. So, hey, why not? Toxic with Social Overlord. Carnivore is one of the most important thrash bands to come out of the New York scene. They would, of course, go on to be typo negative after they broke up after a brief two-album career. However, these two albums would leave a giant bloody mark in the entire scene of East Coast thrash. As a band with heavy Black Sabbath influence and not afraid to lower the BPM once in a while in an almost doomy fashion, Carnivore's massive influence would travel far and wide to many genres. Notorious for dressing up in hockey armor with nails and parts of broken Ataris, Carnivore had sort of a guar-like post-apocalyptic costume theme in their early days. The late Peter Steele would go on to form the band Typo Negative, where he would become a teenage goth girl poster boy and notorious playgirl pinup. Despite this massive change in their musical direction, Steele's original project Carnivore would go down as a major icon in the thrash metal scene in New York City. This particular track, Brooklyn Ground Zero, not a song about Brooklyn being the nexus of the hardcore and metal scene in New York City, but more of an actual nuclear bomb falling on Brooklyn. And that's what Peter Steele's singing about. Carnivore knows where the thrash is at. They're not kidding around. I myself was lucky and fortunate enough to see Carnivore during their first reunion shows in the mid 1990s in a very small club in Manhattan. Quite an amazing show. Never forget it. 
Carnivore actually plays to this day, featuring two original members, Mark Pavanati and Louis Beato, with a fellow by the name of Baron Misaraka on bass and lead vocals, filling in the very large shoes of the late Peter Steele. Once again, this is Carnivore with Brooklyn Ground Zero. This next band is called Blood Feast, and they are from the place where metal didn't just forget to die, but it fucking killed you, Bayonne, New Jersey. And of course, there is a lot of thrash metal bands from New Jersey, it seems. This is a great thing. This song is called The Evil. Blood Feast has a very heavy carnivore-like sound, a forgotten band, and fortunately, I got to find them in my heavy research on this subject. Blood Feast released their first album in 1987, titled Kill for Pleasure. They would be a short-lived band with only two full-length releases. However, like many defunct thrash bands, it would be Blood Feast that recently reunited once again. It seems like it's a thing since they're bringing back the old music and people just don't have faith in the new music for some reason. And these guys are yet another example of old bands that have reunited. Great bands too. I'm glad I found these guys. I'm gonna bring you all of the obscure forgotten metal from all subgenres of metal. It will be my mission in life. The Evil by Bloodfeast. Now in the thrash world, you can't get too far, in the East Coast thrash world, you can't get too far without coming across Billy Milano and one of his ridiculous projects. This of course, is M.O.D., which means Method of Destruction. This song is titled Hate Tank uh, from the USA for M.O.D. Again, I think it's tongue-in-cheek patriotism again. Um, that seems to be a reoccurring theme of a lot of crossover thrash, which uh, Billy Milano is really a pioneer of. I, I think it's Billy Milano and friends that strive to make politically incorrect lyrics simply to piss your people off. I mean, they are a band of trolls. Billy Milano was pissing off snowflakes before it was cool. Is Billy the founder of the alt-right? Maybe. If you're looking for a laugh, good or bad, uh, something by Billy Milano is probably for you. He keeps the funny in thrash. He keeps the offensive in thrash, if that's what you're looking for as well. M.O.D. features a different lineup from S.O.D. It's just another one of his projects. And of course, they are apparently are still playing to this day, M.O.D. with Hate Tank. This next band is called Crumb Suckers, and they are from Long Island. This song is titled Faces of Death. Crumb Suckers are another prime example of East Coast crossover, which I think would be more popular on the East Coast than the West Coast. The West Coast bands were a little more skilled. You could say they were a little more progressive in their thrash whereas the East Coast is really just in the dirt on the street. This band at one point featured Mark Pivanetti of Carnivore's second album, Retaliation, interesting enough. The Crumbsuckers might have been a good example of the perfect crossover band, um, keeping their roots to punk rock true and always keeping the two, the metal and the hardcore amalgamated throughout their entire career. Crumbsuckers would have a not so long career of about only three albums. However, three of the members of their band would go on to form the far more commercially successful band Propane, which you probably heard of. The Crumb Suckers would go down in history as a short-lived but heavily influential band in the East Coast thrash scene. We now travel into the 1990s of East Coast thrash metal. And of course, thrash metal was going strong in the 1990s. Uh, even though the scene, the mainstream scene might have moved on, the thrash was still strong. I, I remember these days. And this band is called Demolition Hammer and they are from the Bronx, New York. And they were signed to Century Media Records. This song is called, what a perfect thrash name. 
infectious hospital waste. If it wasn't about nuclear war or a mental institution or a hulking war machine, it was about some sort of toxic waste. That was the other theme of Thrash. It was toxic waste. If nuclear bombs weren't gonna get you, the toxic waste was gonna get you, especially if you lived in New Jersey during the 1980s. And unfortunately, the Demolition Hammer was not a long lasting band. They only got about three albums out and stopped in about the mid 90s. However, despite their obscurity, their songs would be an important part of the scene. Demolition Hammer with Infectious Hospital Waste. This next band, I never considered a thrash band. I was always a big fan of Guar. And this song, of course, is titled The Years Without Light off of their second album, Scum Dogs of the Universe. It kind of just dawned on me in my research that Guar actually was a thrash band. They're from the East Coast, they're from Richmond, Virginia, uh, Antarctica, actually. And this song titled The Years Without Light qualifies as thrash. It never, it never occurred to me, being such a fan all of these years. Of course, Guar would go on, would be known for their uh, outrageous costume stage performances and their, and their spewing spew, spewing upon the audience. Uh, this, of course, is their second album. Uh, Guar would go on to change their style very quickly to more of a hard rock punk sound, a sound that they actually had originated from, and would return to a thrash sound. Uh, probably in the early part of this century, they kind of went back to this sound, realizing that um, their rock sound was really not working too good. Unfortunately, uh, Dave Rocky, singer Dave Rocky, passed away a few years ago due to heroin. However, the band still goes strong and still puts on a pretty good show. Guar with Years Without Light. This next group is a band that started as hardcore, but turned into crossover thrash. They are from New York City and they are called the Chromags. Now, this song is called Kali Yuga from the Near Death Experience album in the mid 90s. And the Chromags like to sing a lot about um, Hare Krishna values, the whole straight edge thing, I imagine, in that form of folky pokey religion stuff that I have no understanding of. And they sing a lot about the environment and uh, less thrashy things. You could call them the polar opposites of SOD, I would suppose. Uh, recently, the Chromags, or not so recently, the Chromags have had some serious rivalries between um, members, and I believe there are two different existing Chromags at this point. Uh, one of them is opening for the Misfits, as I said before, the one with Harley Flanagan. There's another Chromags, I believe, with original vocalist John Joseph, so I think they might fight each other at one day. But uh, this is the Chromags, a band that turned thrash in the late 90s with Kali Yuga, which is about some sort of weird uh, straight edge Harry Krishna shit that I have no understanding of. I hate songs about religion. This next band is a perfect example of revivalist thrash in the new century, which is going strong today. They are crossover thrash and they are called Iron Reagan with the song Eat Shit and Live. They are East Coast, they are from Richmond, Virginia, just like Guar. And they feature members of the band Municipal Waste and Cannabis Corpse. Uh, Municipal Waste, of course, is another uh, very strong going crossover thrash band of the new century. And um, Iron Reagan has very quick, almost grindcore-like songs with with crossover themes. They're keeping the idea strong. I think they're doing it with the most honesty of any of the re revivalist thrash bands these days. They're doing it with the most authenticity, I would say. Iron Reagan with Eat Shit and Live. We have no time, this song is too short. And this takes us right into, of course, Municipal Waste with Abusement Park. These guys are keeping thrash real. 
Of course, more crossover thrash, also from Richmond, Virginia, featuring most of the same members from the last band, Iron Reagan. Uh, these guys are really keeping the sound going today. They're one of my uh, favorite thrash crossover bands of the day, since, like I said, they're doing it with the most honesty and authenticity, with more comical SOD-like themes, um, songs about uh, alcoholism and mutants, and alcoholic mutants. Uh, this band is really about um, toxic partying as thrash should be. They feature artwork by Ed Repka, of course, uh, keeping their album art original and authentic. And um, Municipal Waste is going strong today and keeping the crossover thrash sound alive and well and keeping the toxic thrash party raging. Municipal Waste with Abusement Park. This next band is basically a bunch of nerds that call themselves thrash from Amherst, Massachusetts. If you're a thrash band from Amsters, Amherst, Massachusetts, you're not a real thrash band. Amherst, Massachusetts is a home of central Massachusetts hipsters, I might say. And these guys in this song basically call out a bunch of other very authentic bands and talk shit about them, so these guys deserve nothing. Uh, Lich King, of course, is named after a famous character in many lores of uh, fantasy, but in their, in their case, it seems to be directly from uh, Hearthstone. So these guys are basically a bunch of nerds that think they're thrashers. So I'm going to call them out and put them on here since they are keeping the thrash sound alive with a good amount of authenticity. However, I don't like the shit they're talking about. I don't like the shit talking they're doing about Manowar and other significant bands, other bands that have paid their dues, unlike you children from Amherst, Massachusetts. Lich King is um, a good example of hipster thrash these days and has an ounce of legitimacy. They've captured the classic thrash sound, so they have that, but you guys are simply doing it wrong. You guys are not all that. No one likes you. Goodbye. This song is called We Came to Conquer. It is you that will be conquered. Goodbye. And that concludes the playlist for episode eight of the Here Lies Metal podcast with Taking Out the Thrash, the evolution of East Coast thrash. Thank you for listening. And we would like to thank all of you for listening to the Here Lies Metal podcast once again. And you can contact us on social media, including Twitter at Here Lies Metal, Facebook at Here Lies Metal, Instagram at Metal Lies Here, and Gmail at Here Lies Metal at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to Here Lies Metal on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And don't forget to rate us. Even if you hate us, if this podcast sucks, like I said before, only you have the power to destroy Maledictus. And once again, it is my passion to bring you, the listener, these tales of metal. However, if you'd like to support the show, your donations are highly appreciated. You can do that on patreon.com forward slash here lies metal because that's what everyone's doing these days. They're just asking random people for money and random people are giving them money. I don't understand it, but hey, I'll try it too. Why not? So I hope you learned a lot from this particular podcast about East Coast thrash metal. Hope you came out of this podcast, all of the people out there, wiser metal fans, because that's the job, that is the duty, that is the obligation given to Maledictus, decreed upon him, sanctioned by the gods to teach you about metal, to teach himself about metal. We need to keep the metal going since all of our old bands are dying off. It's an inevitable reality that we have to deal with. So let's try to make new bands. Let's let's for, let's get out there and form bands. Why don't we all just quit our jobs and form metal bands? Why don't we do that? Why don't you? What do you say? Let's do it. Come on, fuck the world. 
Fuck all this stuff. We can conquer the world with metal, can't we? And bring metal back <laughs> into our lives. It'll be the best things for us and we'll live longer. Anyway, thank you for listening. I'd like to thank everyone out there who has usually has been continuously listening to the show and given me feedback. That includes you, Chris. That includes you, Rich. That includes Ron. Anyone else out there who I haven't mentioned that might have contacted me about this particular show. And thank you for listening. Keep the feedback coming, even if you don't like it. If you have something, or a problem with something I say, if you think it isn't factual, you think it's inaccurate, or if you think you're just plain to disagree with it in a subjective manner, tell me about it. Say, hey, Maledictus, fuck you. I have something to say. So don't be afraid to do that. Please contact me. Here lies metal at gmail.com once again. I like it when you contact me. I like it when you disagree with me. I like it when you send me hate mail. I am Maledictus, and it's all about, it's not just about me about you hearing my message of metal thank you again for listening i once again and maledictus prescribe to all things metal and i hope you all have a great week out there in the real world goodbye <laughs>